Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Well, we've come to a time now we're going to read the Bible reading. So if you have your Bible, please open to 2 Thessalonians 1. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the baskets that are at the ends of the aisles. And that's free to you today if you'd like to take one if you don't have one. So 2 Thessalonians 1. Paul, Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. This will be, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy in his holy people, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be in church this morning. This uh, week, Kim and I on Monday flew out to to sunny Melbourne to arrive in rainy Gold Coast. And then on Friday, the sun finally came out and we flew out of sunny Gold Coast back to rainy Melbourne. So you can thank us for a great week of weather, but you're probably angry at us that we came back. So I'm sorry about that part. But it's great to be here this morning. And today we're continuing our series um, called Progress. And we're working our way through the letters of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. When you're reading through the Bible, I think it's always important to try and immerse yourself in the story. It's easy just to read over something as a bunch of words on a page, but I think it's important to try and get ourselves into the minds of the people that we're reading about so that we can better understand what they're going through. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, I received a phone call from the Baptist Union. I don't get many of those, but I got a phone call one Thursday afternoon as I was finishing up for the week, and it was uh, Daniel Bullock, the guy that kind of runs the Baptist Union these days, and we chatted about church for a while. And then he said to me, have you ever wanted to go on one of those Holy Land tours over in the Middle East? And I said, yeah, I've, I've always wanted to do that. It's kind of on the bucket list in the very distant future when we can afford it and when we win Tats Lotto, but we don't enter, so it's probably never going to happen. And so, yeah, have little faith. And so I sort of explained that, yeah, I'd love to do it one day. And he said, well, we're, we're hoping to take one of our pastors over uh, on a bit of a development trip um, in November this year. Would you like to come? And I said, let me pray about that. Yes, I'd love to come. Um, <laughs> Now let me go and try and convince my wife. That was the harder part. And so I did. In fact, my middle daughter did the convincing, which was really great. She's a bit like me. 
And so on the 20th of November this year, I'll be flying out to um, Israel and the surrounding regions, and I'll be coming back on the 3rd of December. And I'm really quite pumped about it, uh, really excited to think that I'll get to walk in the places that Jesus walked. And I'll get to see some of the things he saw, and I'll get to touch some of the things he touched, and I'll get to smell some of the things he smelt. And what I'm really excited about it is from that point on, when I read through the Gospels, I'd be very surprised if I don't have a greater understanding of some of the context of what Jesus is talking about. Now, today we can't fly off to Thessalonica, but I want to encourage you to try and come with me and imagine what these people were actually going through. And so we've gone through the first letter and we've talked a little bit about it. You'll remember that Paul was a man that travelled around the world preaching the gospel and planting churches. In Paul's ministry life, he went on three main missionary journeys. And it was on the second missionary journey that Paul, Silas and Timothy planted a church in Thessalonica. They were there for a while and as they shared the good news of Jesus, many people responded. And the end result is that they planted a small church. Now, after a short while of leading that church, Paul and his companions were kind of driven out of town. And so they left Thessalonica and they headed off to a different region to plant another church. And so I want you to imagine for a moment, this is a culture where there's a lot of persecution going on. And I want, to imagine, uh, I want you to imagine that you are part of this young church. You've just become a Christian. You've responded to faith. You've got these inspiring apostles that are leading this you know, fledging church. All of a sudden, they go. And you're left in this culture in the midst of extreme persecution without the guidance of your inspirational leaders. It would be a tough environment. And this is what was happening for this church in Thessalonica. Now, you might remember before the first letter was written, Paul was in Corinth and he was stressing out about these young people back in Thessalonica. He was worried that under the heat of persecution that their faith was just going to kind of dwindle away. They were young Christians. Uh, he didn't think they were going to have the strength to, to kind of stand up to what was going on. And so out of this concern and his love for these people, he sent Timothy all the way back from Corinth back to Thessalonica to see how they were going. And then Timothy came back with a progress report and Paul was expecting bad news. That Timothy was just going to say, it's all fallen apart. Um, your inspirational leaders have gone. It's just a mess down there. But he actually came back with positive news. And the positive news is that this young church and these young Christians were thriving in their faith. You might remember in the first chapter, verse 3, um, it's reported that their work was produced by faith. Their labour was being prompted by love and they were enduring because they were inspired by the incredible hope that they had this, in this person called Jesus Christ. And so after receiving this progress report, Paul wrote the first letter of Thessalonians and it was really to encourage them to keep progressing in their faith, which was growing in nearly every way. Now as we went through the first letter, we realised that there was only one area that they were lacking in their faith and that was that they lacked a proper understanding of what would happen when Jesus returned. And so Paul is trying to address that in these two letters. Now, Rowan's sermon last week was a great sermon if you missed it. In fact, if you've missed any sermons in the series through the first letter of Thessalonians, you can jump on the um, iTunes or on the website and you can catch up with those. But Rowan last week finished the first letter of the Thessalonians. 
And today, we're commencing the second letter written to the Thessalonians. And from verse 1 of today's passage, you will see that this, once again, was written by Paul, Silas, and Timothy. It was once again sent from Corinth to this young church in Thessalonica. And several months had elapsed between the first letter being written and now this second letter arriving with this young church. And in that little lapse of time, the persecution had actually increased and gotten a lot worse for these young Christians. And so once again, Paul, with his pastoral heart, would have been quite concerned about these people who he dearly loved, but word came back to Paul on where they were at, and in the first chapter, he really gives a summary of how they're going. What he's giving us today is an evaluation report of how their faith is tracking along. Now, Kim and I, as I said a moment ago, have just come back from the Gold Coast, and we were there for a marriage retreat. When we planned to follow, we had the support of a church planning network called Geneva Push that have supported us in a variety of different ways. But one of the ways they've supported us is that every year for the first three years of planning a church, they put on a free marriage retreat for all the church planners that have planted churches right around Australia. It was kind of a great joy this time, but also quite sad because it was our last one. And I really wanted to change, you know, it says the year that your church planted, it said 2015, and I tried to change it with a black text of a 2016 so I could eke out one more year, but they were onto me. So this is our, our last time. But we went away for a marriage retreat, and it's really great. They, they do the things for you that you probably can't afford to do yourself. So they put you up in a nice hotel, and they get guest speakers in who, you know, kind of speak into your marriage and enrich your relationship. And then they create space for you to spend time with other church planners going through similar things. And also, most importantly, they create space for you to spend time together as husband and wife. And so it's a time of reflection and it's a time of evaluation on how you're going in your marriage. What have we done well in the last 12 months and what areas do we need to work on? Now, self-evaluation is, I think, something that's really healthy. And it's something that perhaps we don't do enough in our marriages and in our other relationships in life. But we did some evaluation this week. And the good news is, after evaluating it all, we, we sort of determined that I'm a wonderful husband. <laughs> that was the good news. The bad news is that Kim's got some things to work on. Um, that's only a joke. It's probably actually the opposite way around. Um, but it was great to just kind of sit down, pray, evaluate you know, how we're going. And, you know, we, we came out thinking, yeah, our marriage is in a really good place. Um, that's a great thing after planning a church. There's a lot of pressure and, and God's really protected our marriage and grown it. But there's also some areas that we can keep investing in to make it even stronger. And so it was a very helpful week and hopefully our marriage will get stronger uh, even more stronger in the years to come. In the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, it starts with an evaluation of this young church. And there's some good news, uh, like there was with Kim and I, and there's some bad news, like there was with Kim and I. And he sort of outlines it in the first chapter. Have you ever had someone say to you, I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which one do you want first? Who gets the good news? There is no optimist in this room except me and my dad. <laughs> Who wants the bad news? Oh, my goodness, let's pray. Dear Lord, <laughs> you have little faith, pray to these people. I always ask for the good news. I want the good news first. I'm an optimist. Um, give me solutions, not problems. Give me great news, not bad news. Um, I love good news. I heard of a doctor once who went to his patient and he said, I've got some bad news and I've got some very bad news. Which one do you want first? And the patient said, well, you might as well give me the bad news first. And so the doctor said, the lab called with your test results. They said that you have 24 hours to live. And he said, oh, that's the bad news. It can't get any worse than that. What could possibly be worse? Now, give me the very bad news. And he said, well, I've been trying to reach you since yesterday. 
bad news and even worse news. The good news for this young church is it's predominantly good news, but there is some good news and some bad news, and I'm going to start with the good news this morning. The good news that Paul evaluates in the first chapter is that this young church was continuing to grow in their faith. And the growth was happening in two significant ways, and I think these two things can encourage us as a new church as well. And not only will they encourage us, but they can help us with our self-evaluation individually and also corporately as a church. And so the first area that they were really growing is that they were growing in their own faith. Their own faith in God had grown. So if you look at verse 3, Paul says, We ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. This is miraculous. These young Christians have been led to the Lord by these inspirational leaders who'd now gone, left them in incredible persecution. And even though the persecution had ramped up significantly, their faith in God was growing supernaturally. They are walking, talking, not living dolls. They were breathing miracles. For those that don't know Cliff Richard, that went right over your head. I only know it because my dad listened to it. I've got no interest at all. But they were growing in their faith and it was incredible. It showed that their faith wasn't just emotional. They didn't just respond to an altar call one day and when the hype wore off, they kind of just walked away. It it wasn't circumstantial that they would follow Jesus just when it's easy and life is good. No, their faith was incredibly strong and it was deeply rooted in the gospel. I've met many people over the years who've professed to be followers of Jesus But as soon as life has become difficult or circumstances haven't gone their way, they've kind of gone, no, this is all too inconvenient. It's just too hard. This Jesus thing doesn't work. And they've just kind of walked away. Jesus describes people like that in the parable of the sower, and he talks about them being seed who fall on the rocky ground. In other words, they have no root, and so they only last a short time. And as soon as trouble or persecution comes because of the word, They quickly fall away. And I've met many people like that over the years, but that's not this church, this young church in Thessalonica. Verse 3 says they were growing more and more. Now, the word growing is better translated as the word flourishing. I love that word. You know how some words just sound like they are? Flourishing. It's not stingy. Flourishing. It's not stingy. It's flourishing. And their faith in God was flourishing in so many ways. This word is the only time this Greek word is used in the New Testament, and it's a picture of internal growth that is strong like that of an oak tree. In other words, their faith is grounded, it's growing, it's strong, even when the winds of life bash against it, they are standing firm for Jesus. The good news is that these young Christians after putting their faith in Jesus, have passionately pursued him. They have grown in him, even though it's been tough. And so today, we can read their story. We can use their example, not only as an encouragement, but as a mirror into our own lives, as a tool of self-evaluation to ask ourselves the question, how are we growing in our faith? And so today, I want to ask you the question as we come towards rounding out a year. How have you grown in your faith in 2017? If you were to evaluate your own life today, if you're in an interview room, sitting at a desk with God on the other side where you can't hide anything at all, and he said, I want you to give a mark out of 10 about how much you've grown in your faith this year, what would you say? 
How have you grown in 2017? I think in my own life, there are some areas that I have flourished and there's some areas that are a bit more stingy. And I need God to help me in those areas where perhaps I've stagnated, maybe even gone backwards. And I, f- I guess we all feel the same at different times. And so what about you? Has your love of the word grown this year? Has your passion for prayer increased? Has your reliance on the Holy Spirit become more real? Has your commitment to fellowship strengthened? Has your joy to serve been enhanced? Has your motivation for mission grown stronger? Have you flourished in 2017? Or have you stagnated, gone backwards in your faith? God's desire is for us to be people who keep trusting in him, empowered by the Holy Spirit to keep growing in our faith. And Paul commends this young church because they have. That's the first bit of good news. The second bit of good news in the evaluation in their progress is that their love for one another has also increased. Sometimes we think, oh, well, I'm growing in my faith, but the people around me annoy me more and more. Well, it wasn't the case for them. Their love for one another had increased. If we look back at verse 3, once again, he says, we ought to always thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. And the love all of you have for one another is increasing. In the New American Standard Version, it says their love for each other is becoming ever greater. Again, the Greek word, it helps us here. It paints a picture of something that spreads out and disperses widely like floodwaters. Their love for each other is spreading out. It can't be contained. Remember a few years ago in the house that we grew up in in Cheltenham, we lived at the end of a court and it was on a slight sort of slope down. And, and a few times when we were living there, I remember we had those freak flash, flash floods. Try saying that fast, freak flash floods. Uh, and you know when the heavens open up and just, it just seems to rain forever and it's pelting down on the tin roof. And I remember having a couple of those floods and I remember standing in the kitchen watching the court and as the water poured down, it came over uh, the, the gutter, it came over down the driveway, down the path. It was like a tsunami coming towards us. And I remember standing in the kitchen looking at the front as the water level rose and I remember seeing the front doormats float past. The garage was completely flooded. It was a mess. And I remember that the storm water drains at the end of our court, they just weren't sufficient. They failed. And in the midst of a crisis, the water just overflowed everywhere. This describes the love of the Thessalonian church. In the midst of a crisis, the persecution, their love for one another overflowed into each other's lives. Their love was genuine. It was sincere. And the love of Christ, which had flooded their hearts, could not be contained, so it overflowed to one another. Again, this is a challenge for us. Let it be a mirror into our lives. Let it be a mirror into our souls. How deeply do we love one another? As we look around here today, is it surface level or has it gone deeper than that? Is it shallow or is it ever increasing? Again, this is a great challenge. Have we grown in our relationships with people in 2017? How have we sought to go deeper than the hi, bye, see you next week? As Rowan said last week, loving one another, it's all of our roles. We all have a role to play in loving one another. This is why we do things like our table builder's lunch. Uh, If you don't know what that is, uh, once every quarter we go into someone's house and we um, hook up a whole lot of people together that don't know each other that well and it's a chance to sit and to eat and to get to know one another. And that happens four times a year and that's great, but it's not meant to stop at four times a year. Let me let you in on a little secret. The idea of those lunches is to stimulate proactive growth in relationship, that it wouldn't be once every four 
once every three months, but it would be something where you meet people, you get to know them more, and then you continue those relationships and they start to go deeper. That's the whole aim of an initiative like that. And so have you proactively invested in people's lives in 2017? Have you sought to go deeper? Have you had people in your home? Paul commends them in verse 4. In fact, he boasts about them because they're a healthy church who love God and love one another. So how do we know if we're a healthy church? I've read books about this and they've got all sorts of gauges. Some people look at the numbers that come to a church. Some people focus on the finances. Some people talk about how many people are serving. But I think the best yardstick is the one that Paul uses in this passage for the Thessalonians. And it's it's the two greatest commands that Jesus talks about. That we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And so have we grown in our relationship with Jesus this year? The second one is to love your neighbour as yourself. And so have we gone deeper in our relationships? There's the gauge for a healthy church. And if those things are healthy, then everything else will flow from that. This church was flourishing in those two areas. And I pray that we will be a church that continue to flourish in those areas as well. So that's the good news in this evaluation. But there's some bad news as well. And the bad news is that the false teaching on the second coming of Christ has spread throughout the Thessalonian church. This was already the weak point in their faith. And some of these converts were, were really lacking in their understanding of eschatology. And they've been thrown into confusion by false teachers with wrong motives. These teachers were actually teaching them that the day of the Lord had already come. And because of what they were going through, some of them had started to believe it. Some of them had quit their jobs. They stopped working and they started waiting for Jesus to appear. And so here's the summary of Paul's evaluation. The good news is they're growing in their faith, they're flourishing in their love for one another, but the bad news is that they're confused about Jesus' return and what's going to happen to them when he comes back. And so this all launches us into Paul's main two points in chapter 1. And the point number one is this, that in the midst of their struggles and pain, God is just. And the second point is that in all their circumstances, God is with them. God is just and God is with them. And so let's focus on the first part, that God is just. We read about this in verses 4 to 10. The Thessalonian church were in a season that was really difficult and perhaps they were even starting to question why God was allowing their suffering and why he wasn't answering their prayers. It didn't seem fair. It didn't seem just. I think this is still the biggest question that people have of God today. Have you ever heard someone say, if there is a loving God, why is there so much suffering in the world? I think for us as Christians, we often wonder why God allows us to suffer. I think they're fair and reasonable questions to ask. I think the Bible has clear answers to that question or those questions. And if I was to answer that question in one succinct, clear sentence, I'd put it like this. We suffer because of our sin. We suffer because of our sin. Now, let me clarify that by saying that it's our sin individually. Absolutely, that has consequences. But it's also sin universally. So let me give you an example. If I was to leave church today and go down to the local service station and commit an armed robbery, I would pay the consequences of that and I'll get thrown in prison. Although I'm in Victoria, so I'd probably get a $50 fine, a bit of community service I'd never do, and I'd go and rob another one tomorrow. But either way, there'd be some sort of consequences individual consequences for my individual sin. But if I got cancer, I don't believe it's because I robbed the servo. I believe that I get cancer because of the result of universal sin 
and I've contributed to that as well. And so when you look back at the book of beginnings, Genesis, you'll see that it wasn't like this at first. This broken world we live in wasn't what it was like in the Garden of Eden. There wasn't any cancer. There was no brokenness. There was no evil. There was no sin. There was no pain. And it wasn't until Adam and Eve actually rebelled against God and decided they're going to do things their own way that sin entered creation and it's been wrecking creation ever since. It's been damaging and pulling apart our relationships ever since. This is the devastating effects of sin. Suffering wasn't part of God's design. It was a result of our sin. And so we can easily blame God, can't we? Everyone says, oh, it was God's fault that my... My grandma died. It's God's fault that I lost my job. And it's God's. If God was real, why would this stuff happen? And we're really quick to blame God for every bad thing. We're really slow to thank Him for every good thing. You know, God is incredibly good. Don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from our Heavenly Father. And so we have got enough to thank Him for for all eternity. God is good. And when bad things happen in our life, it's not because God's not good. It's because our sin has caused all sorts of havoc in creation. And that's the bad news. The good news is this, that the gospel is incredibly powerful. Jesus Christ on the cross, he died in your place. And he died in my place. And when he stretched out his hands, he took all of the punishment for our individual sin. Everything we do wrong Every time we've fallen short, Jesus took our punishment upon himself. And so our individual sin is paid for at the cross when we put our faith in Christ. But not only did he pay for our individual sin, but he came to destroy the power of sin and death universally. He conquered the devil at the cross. That's great news. It deserves a greater round of applause than what you just gave. That is the best news ever. And one day he's coming back to finish that work and sin and death will be destroyed forever and we'll live in the presence of God. And what a wonderful day that will be. But I don't know if you've noticed in the meantime, (laughs) we suffer. We live in a fallen, broken world and we've all contributed to that. We've all played a part in the mess that we find ourselves in. It's not God's fault, it's our fault. And so we can look at suffering and go, oh, poor us. Or we can look at suffering like the Bible teaches us to and actually see that God does incredible things even in the midst of our suffering. The Bible makes it clear that suffering isn't all bad or at least the fruit of it isn't. In fact, God encourages us to embrace suffering as a way of life in his kingdom as we wait for Christ to return and where suffering will end. Paul says in Acts 14, we must go through many hardships. The word must is a pretty powerful. We must It won't be an easy journey as a Christian. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God where hardship will cease. But in the meantime, it's difficult. In this passage, Paul highlights that suffering has its benefits. And for me, one of my life passages in Romans chapter 5, and it says, rejoice in your sufferings because sufferings produce. They produce perseverance. Perseverance produces character. It shapes the person you are. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. From a biblical perspective, God allows and in fact uses suffering to shape our lives and our character to make us the people he's calling us to be. And this is the point that Paul's making to these people, that God is a just God. 
Suffering doesn't mean that God's judgment day has come upon you. It may simply mean that in this fallen, broken world, in the suffering, God is using it to refine you and me to become more like his son. And so if you're suffering right now, and I know there's many people that are, I know there's people in our congregation this week who've lost loved ones. I know there's people that are struggling physically, emotionally, mentally, financially, even spiritually. If that's you this morning, I want to say to you, I want to beg you not to assume, God, why are you punishing me? But instead say, God, what are you teaching me? In this circumstance, how are you growing me in this season to be more like Christ? What I'm trying to say is this, don't waste suffering. Embrace it and allow God to work in it for his glory, knowing that he works all things together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. In verse 4, Paul says, Therefore, amongst God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and your faith in all the persecutions and trials that you're enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, using this for your good and for his glory. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are currently suffering. But God also makes it clear to these people through Paul's letter that those who are inflicting the suffering, those that are bringing the persecuting, won't get away with it either because God is just. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate injustice. I really, I'm just wired to really hate injustice. I really buck up against it. I hate it when people treat me unfairly, and I can't stand it when I see injustice in the world. When I hear stories of Christians in other parts of the world being you know, forced out of their homes, being abused, thrown in prison, when I hear about them being beheaded en masse, I don't know about you, but my first response is not to pray for forgiveness for those who are doing it. I pray for a portal that I can jump through with a sword like Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane and you know, take revenge, you know, administer a little bit of justice. That's my first Response. Now, looking out at how righteous you are, I feel a bit embarrassed. And you're probably thinking, well, my first response when people mistreat me is to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me. Well, if that's you, you're closer to Jesus than I am. And I'm still a work in progress. You've made it. But I'm pretty sure we all feel the same at times, don't we? When, we, when people hurt us, we don't want to let it go. We want to hold on to unforgiveness. We want to let it fester a little bit. We want them to know that they've done the wrong thing. We want to respond by shutting them out, by somehow getting even. And I think the reason we struggle is because we think it's unfair that get, people get away with so much stuff that they shouldn't. We want to take things into our own hands, get revenge, but that's not our role. Our role is to live out the gospel and to trust God with the, with the rest. Paul reminds this church that God is just and those who persecute his people will be punished by God himself. And so as they live out the gospel of love and forgiveness, God will take care of the rest. Don't do God's job. Leave it to him. In verses 6 to 10, there is some really profound and confronting truth about what will happen on judgment day when Jesus returns. And I think it's very difficult, and it's as difficult as it is, it's important for us to try and imagine it. You know, it's a bit of a glimpse of heaven. It's a bit of a glimpse of hell. A lot of people in churches these days, they avoid talking about hell. But I'll tell you one person who didn't. His name's Jesus. He talked about it all the time. Maybe because when we get a picture of hell, it gives us a glorious picture of heaven. We deserve that one. But in Christ, we get that one. That's a pretty awesome truth. Verse 6, it starts by saying, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. 
and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Imagine what that will be like. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. How? Verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at amongst those who've believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. It's impossible for us to imagine this day, but I want you to try today. Imagine what this day will be like because Paul contrasts two um, competing futures. A future for those that have rejected Christ, the Bible calls it hell, and a future for those that have received Christ, the Bible calls it heaven. And you can't get a more starker contrast from east to west. That is the difference, from darkness to light. The difference between heaven and hell. It's as stark as night and day. The prophet Joel called it the great and dreadful day of the Lord. For those who have rejected Jesus, who is the only way to be saved, on that day it will be a terrifying and tragic day. It will be horrific. It will be dreadful. Read verse 9. It says, They will be punished with everlasting destruction. It will never end. It will go on and on. But here's the worst part. They'll be shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory and the wonder and the splendor of his might. They'll be shut out. Our son Lenny has always been a really bad sleeper. It'd be fair to say he gets a little bit of separation anxiety. And he loves being in the presence of his parents. And because of that, every night for his entire life, Kim and I have had to deal with that and we've had to take it in turns to put him to sleep. Sometimes it takes an hour to get him to sleep. But last week, Lenny turned five. And we all know that's big boy age, don't we? <laughs> At least Lenny does. And so we said, when you're five, you're a big boy. As much as we'd like to stay in your room, we can't because we can't sleep in there with big boys. And so you're in the room by yourself. And he's excited. He's like, yes, I'm going to turn five. I'm a big boy. And I think he was really excited about his party in the presence. But he was excited about sleeping in the room by himself. And he was really excited about it until the day he turned five. (laughs) And he started saying, I don't want to sleep by myself. Can you come in with me tonight, Daddy? I said, no, you're a big boy. Can't do that. And so on the night of his fifth birthday... It ended in tears, it'd be fair to say. But I I put him to bed and he was crying and yelling out. And he said, Daddy, I want you to come in. And so a couple of times I popped my head in and said, you're doing well, mate. You're a big boy. Go to sleep. Um, And then I sat. I said, I'm going to sit outside your room until you get to sleep. So it was still an hour, but I was outside the room. So (laughs) that's progress. And uh, I've got to say, as a dad, it was heartbreaking to sit there and listen to my son genuinely sobbing. (laughs) (laughs) for an hour it's like torture sitting there I love my son with all my heart and to sit there and to listen to him it was really quite dreadful and as I was thinking about that this week he had this deep anguish because he'd been shut out of our presence or in this case shut into his room where he was meant to be and as I was considering that this week it was like a, a kind of a mini micro version of what it's going to be like on judgment day when people are tragically and heartbreakingly shut out of the presence of God. The Bible says there will be weeping and there will be gnashing of teeth. Church, that should break our heart. That's the future of so many people if they refuse to put their faith in Jesus. You don't want to be in that position on judgment day. 
You don't want to be shut out of the presence of your heavenly Father who loves you so much that he gave his own son for you. His desire is that nobody would experience that dreadful reality. You see, God is everything good. As I said before, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And no matter how miserable your life is, there's still so many things in this life that bring joy. There's so many things that we can be thankful for. So many things that make life wonderful. And you can't even imagine this, but try today that if everything wonderful that you've ever experienced in life, all the life and vibrancy and colour and joy was sucked out of creation, what you'd be left with is what the Bible calls hell. See, absence of God, who is everything good. That's worse than we could ever imagine. That's more tragic than we can wrap our heads around. And so Paul paints this picture of what it's going to be like on that day for those who haven't put their faith in Christ. But then on the the black backdrop of hell, he paints a glorious picture bursting with light. It's a picture of heaven. It's a wonderful picture. It's something so incredibly magnificent that our puny brains can't even begin to compute it. I think in this life, those magnificent moments are just a tiny little glimpse of what eternity would be like at such a higher and more grand level. 1 Corinthians says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has ever conceived, these are the things that God has prepared for those who love him. In verse 10, it says, On that day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believe. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Judgment day. That great and dreadful day is a day that God's justice will be validated completely. No one will be able to say it's not fair, I didn't have a chance, because each of us have been given the opportunity to put our faith in Jesus and have him take our punishment so that we don't have to take it ourselves. Those who have not put their faith in Jesus, those who have rejected him, will get what they deserve, and that's punishment for their sins. That's what we all deserve. But those who have put their faith in Jesus will get what we don't deserve, and that is forgiveness of our sins, because Jesus took our punishment for us. And so by faith and by the grace of God, we'll be welcomed into his presence. In Christ, we will never be shut out. We'll be welcomed in. It's incredible. Welcome into the presence of God, into a future that will leave us constantly in awe of the beauty and magnificence of who God is. He finishes by telling them that God is not only just, not only has he given you a hope for the future, but God is with you. And I'll finish really quick on this in verse 11 and 12. He guarantees them that God's with them through every trial, every joy, every moment, through every season. He says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians... We have this glorious hope of eternity and there is times where that hope keeps us going. And it's a great future to think about, but there's times that we just need to know that God's with us right now. He's with us in the trenches. He's with us in those times in life. And I want to tell you today that God is not just with you, but he's for you and he loves you. He says, I will never, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. In the toughest times, where am I? 
I'm with you. I'm in you. I'm for you. I love you. Today we need to be guaranteed that God in Christ is with us. And it's him who will help us not only to keep standing and persevering, but to keep living for him in every way. Paul prays for God's power in these people's lives so that the name of Jesus would be glorified in them and that they may find their glory in him. That's my prayer for us as well today. May we grow in our love for God. May we flourish in our love for each other. May the justice of God in Christ bring us great hope for the future. And may the presence of God in the present give us the ability to endure through all of life's struggles. Let's bow our heads and we're going to pray. Lord God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We love your word. We know it's life-giving. We know that there are parts that are incredibly light and exciting. There are parts that are quite heavy. And today, there's parts in this passage that are really heavy as we ponder what life will be like on Judgment Day. Lord, I pray that each of us on that day will be prepared. We will be ready. We will be able to stand uh, in your presence as the books are open, as you pronounce your judgment As you pronounce it over our lives, it won't be guilty. But in Christ, it'll be not guilty. It'll be forgiven. It'll be saved. It'll be welcomed into the presence of the Almighty God in Christ. Lord, what a great hope we have. What a great joy we have to be people that have you with us in the present, that you're for us, that you love us. Lord, I pray that that would give us great confidence in all that we do. Help us to keep living for you in every way. Lord, we can't do it on our own. And so fill us afresh today with your Holy Spirit so that we would represent you in every way this week, in our workplaces, in our families, in our schools, in our unis, in our friendship circles. May we be the light of the world that you've called us to be. We can only do it with your presence with us. And so we ask you to help us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.